Not everyone appreciates satire, but I got a laugh this past week when I saw this Babylon Bee headline. It caught my attention because I was working on this week's text. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And the headline made me wonder, though, how much media do we actually consume these days? And I know that you've heard some of these statistics before. Uh, So I looked it up. I tried to find the best stats I could find. And here's what I learned. These are from late 2020. They were published uh, in March of 2021. American adults spend about 10 hours a day interacting with media. Now, media is, is a broad term. And it means everything from radio and live TV, video games, ebooks, audiobooks, and media on the internet and on your phones, uh, apps, think uh, Netflix, YouTube, TikTok, Twitter, and the like. Ten hours a day. That's a lot of time spent in front of the screen. Now, before those of us with gray hair point our fingers at the younger folk, here, and all their video games, you should probably know how this breaks down into age categories. 18 to 34 years of age, they consumed on average seven and a half hours of media per day, while the 50 to 65-year-old category consumed a whopping 11 hours and 28 minutes per day. Different media, slightly different media, but four hours more than the young people playing video games. So I I highlight those numbers not to to judge you and, and, and tell you that your media time is excessive, though it probably is. Uh, You can be the judge of that. I highlight it because I question the content of what we are bringing into our minds. This morning's text is a command. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And with 10 hours of media pouring into my mind through my eyes and ears every day, there's no question that we're letting many things dwell within us. The question is, what? What are we allowing in? Of course, my aim this morning is for more of that content to be the Word of God. And that's the main point of the message this morning. It's a very simple message, and here it is. I want you to get into the Word of God this week and this year, and I want to get the Word of God into you. It's that simple. So if you hear nothing else I say, that's the message right there. I want you to get into the Word of God. I want you to get the Word of God into you. So let me now make that as confusing as I can. Before we jump into our text, I want to refresh our memory about where we've been. We have been journeying through the book of Colossians now for about a year. We're getting close to a year now. And... If you're wondering why it takes us a year to get through four chapters of, uh, of one book, I can tell you that I'm the culprit. My assignment this morning, I'm just confessing, my assignment this morning was to preach Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And 
by late last night, after hours and hours of study and writing, I had successfully gotten through one verse. And so I have to confess that to Brian, who prepares songs for singing, and I've got to confess it to Josh, who's probably already prepared uh, the next set of verses. So I'm just confessing it to everyone this morning. The reason it has taken us a year to get through Colossians is me. But let me refresh us on the context of this letter. This is important. I need to emphasize it this morning because we are looking at yet another command that Paul is giving us for Christian living. From the prayer that started this letter and all throughout, Paul's concern was to protect the church in Colossae from falling prey to false teaching. The faith of the Colossians seemed to be genuine. It was the kind of faith that overflowed in love for fellow saints. But Paul wanted them to become even more mature so that they might continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that had come to them. You see, he wanted to fortify them against anyone who might try to lead them astray with arguments that on the surface seemed plausible, arguments that might tempt them to turn away from Christ, the substance, to shadows like religious rules and regulations in man-made traditions. If you've been with us, you are hearing all of chapter 1 and chapter 2. Paul did this first by praying for them, then by showing them the true nature of Christ and Christ's preeminence over everything. Christ is divine, he said. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That means that Christ is supreme over everything. He is fully sufficient for all things, and he is fully satisfying for even the infinite abyss of desire that is in your soul. So to look elsewhere is to deny the all-sufficiency of Christ and to seek your satisfaction in things that are earthly and fleeting. It is idolatry. And Paul wants to guard them against this teaching. In chapter 3, Paul tells the Colossians to set their minds on things above, where their all-sufficient Christ is, and not on things that are on earth. That's in verse 2. Paul follows that with instructions or commands for how to live the Christian life. That is, how they are to live the kind of life that is fully pleasing to God. And he uses the analogy of baptismal clothing. He tells them to strip off their old filthy clothes, clothes like anger and wrath and malice and slander. And he tells them to put on the brilliant baptismal clothes of Christ-likeness, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, peace, and the very pinnacle of Christ-like virtue, love. They are to put off vice and they are to put, off, put on virtue. That's the context of this morning's passage. But here's the most important part of the context. Paul didn't just dump this list of commands on these new believers. 
Rather, he grounded them, he grounded these commands in a profound spiritual reality, their union with the all-sufficient Christ. This is what we're learning in the equipping hour. Paul doesn't just tell the Colossians to obey, live like this, don't live like that. He leads them to the power source that enables them to put off the old and to put on the new. He tells them, this is chapter 3, verse 3, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That is by God's grace through faith, the Colossians were united with Christ. This means that they were spiritually in Christ. Christ is in them and they are in him, drawing their life from him like a branch drawing life-giving sap from the trunk of a tree. This union is the work of the Holy Spirit in applying in the life of his people all that Christ accomplished in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. In a sense, believers are one with Christ. There's a solidarity with Christ. They are now identified with Christ. As one theologian defined it, our union with Christ is the relationship through which Christians receive every benefit of salvation. It includes the fact that we're in Christ, that Christ is in us, that we are like Christ, and that we are with Christ. That's union with Christ. Paul explains this concept clearly in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. And listen to the connection between being buried and raised in union with Christ and the Christian walk or holy living. We were buried, therefore, with Christ by baptism into death. Why? In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. On the cross, Christ defeated the power of sin and death, and in his resurrection, he proved it. Even the, evil, even the power of evil spirits that would lure us to sin has been broken, and the spirits themselves have been defeated. You should remember that from earlier in this letter. Believer, you have died with Christ. Therefore, you are no longer enslaved to sin. Before you came to faith, you could do nothing but sin. But now, united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection, you can walk, not perfectly, but you can walk in a manner fully pleasing to your Lord. Remember, that was Paul and Timothy's prayer for the Colossians at the very beginning of this letter. Let me put this another way. The fountain of your growth into Christ-likeness is your union and your communion with Christ. Obeying the commands that Paul's giving us here is impossible apart from being united with Christ. And that's not an overstatement. But the reality of our union is what gives us new hearts. If anyone is in Christ, that is in union with Christ, he is a new creation the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And being in Christ also gives the believer confidence and strength 
and comfort and joy. And it inflames these new hearts of ours with gratitude and love for Christ. And it frees us and empowers us to live the life of holiness that we are called to. So that is the context of this morning's passage. And I've taken up at least half the sermon now, giving you the context. But it is important that we understand that. Let's move into our text and take a look at yet one more of Paul's commands for Christian living. I call this a command. That's technically what it is. It's an imperative to be obeyed. But what's interesting about it is that while it is a command, it's also the means by which we can know and obey other commands. So I don't have a really good category for what this thing is, but here it is. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Two questions. What is the word of Christ? And what does it mean to let it dwell in us richly? Well, this is the only place in the New Testament where I found this exact phrase, the word of Christ. But if you look up, how Luke and Paul and others in the New Testament use similar phrases, you see that it refers to two interrelated things. One, the word or the message about Christ. That is what the Old Testament, all of the Old Testament, and the apostles taught about him. So the word or the message about Christ. And two, the gospel proper or the gospel narrowly understood, Christ's perfect life his death, burial, and resurrection to save sinners. So the gospel and the message about Christ. So it's safe to say that the word of Christ is the message of the mystery of Christ in general, and more specifically, it is the gospel. You could say that it's the gospel message about Christ, but I think we can simplify it even further. Let me try. Here's the thing. We do not live in the first century. Today, there is only one authoritative place where you can find the gospel message about Christ. And it's not in creation. You can gaze upon a blazing red sunset with the Columbia River in the foreground and Mount Hood in silhouette. And you can see something of the glory of our God, something of his power and of his eternal nature but you cannot see the gospel. The authoritative gospel message about Christ is not found in creation, and it is not found in church tradition. It's not found in creeds or confessions. However wonderful and helpful those things might be, they are not authoritative, nor are preachers or podcasts or even old dead theologians who we love so much. The authoritative gospel message about Christ is to be found only in the Word of God. That is the standard. That is the only authoritative standard. The Word of Christ, then, we can say, the Word of Christ is the Word of God. Now, what does it mean for us to let this gospel message about Christ or the Word of God dwell in us? This is an interesting word. The word dwell means to live in or to, to move in and 
to make a home in or to take up residence. It is to move in and fill up every room, every closet, every nook and cranny of the house. It's not to move in like a slave. It's to move in and take over the entire place. It is to control and to dominate. The word of Christ move in, moves in as the master of the house. This is the same word used of faith, the faith that takes up residence inside believers. This is Paul writing to Timothy. He said, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt, that is, took up residence and filled your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. The same word is used to describe the Holy Spirit taking up residence inside believers. Romans 8, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, takes up residence and fills you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells, again, the same word, who dwells in you. And here in our text, Paul goes further and he takes the word dwell and he puts it in the, in the present tense. And what that means is that it is continuous. It is ongoing. We must continually be letting the word dwell in us. It is a continuous action. So let me bring together all that we've learned up to this point. To let the word of Christ dwell in you is to let the word of God dwell in you. It is to continually, day by day, let the authoritative, God-breathed message of the gospel of Christ take up residence within you and fill every nook and cranny of your life as the master of the house. That's what it means to let the word of Christ dwell in you. It's a beautiful picture. The Puritan preacher Matthew Henry gave a nice summary of this. The gospel, he said, is the word of Christ which has come to us. Now, he's, he's reflecting back on Colossians 1. The word of the truth, the gospel, came to the Colossians. And what he's saying is the word of Christ which has come to us, but that's not enough. It must dwell in us, he says, or keep house, not as a servant in a family who's under another's control, but as a master who has a right to prescribe and direct all under his roof. We must take our instructions and directions from it and our portion of meat and strength, of grace and comfort in due season as from the master of the household. It must dwell in us. That is, be always ready and at hand to us in everything and have its due influence and use. That is what it means for the word of Christ to dwell in us. But not only must the word dwell in us, it must dwell in us richly or in abundance or in fullness. Many have the word of Christ dwelling in them, wrote Matthew Henry, but it dwells in them but poorly. It has no mighty force and influence upon them, but the soul prospers when the word of God dwells in us richly, when we have an abundance of it in us and are full of the scriptures and full 
of the grace of Christ. John MacArthur picks this up and connects it to the word taking up residence as the master within us. To dwell in you richly means to be saturated by the word of Christ, saturated with the things of Christ, to be dominated by it. Elsewhere, he said, Scripture should permeate every aspect of the believer's life and control every thought and every word and every deed. How do we do that? There's more to it, but let me give two initial instructions. First, to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, you must know the word. You must hear it, read it, study it, memorize it. You need to saturate yourself with the word and let it fill every part of your life. What better, more joyful, more fruitful way could you spend at least some of those 10 hours a day that you have on screen time? But it's not enough to simply fill your mind with biblical facts and notions and theological speculations. Number two, the truths that fill your head must be pressed into your heart and flow out into holy living. The English Puritan Richard Baxter and others used the analogy of eating and digestion to distinguish between mere learning and biblical meditation. His point is easy to understand. I think we've got a quote up here. His point is easy to understand, but you'll just have to forgive his 17th century understanding of biology. A man may eat too much. Uh, So close to uh, having finished the holidays, I think we can all understand that. A man may eat too much, but he cannot digest too well. As digestion is the turning of raw food into chyle and blood and spirits and flesh, so meditation, rightly managed, turns the truths received and remembered into warm affection, raised resolution, and holy and upright living. That's what biblical meditation is. It's not enough for us to merely know and to collect facts. It must go from our head into our heart and flow out into holy living. Now, that's the first phrase of our text, but it's the main point. Everything that follows will support that point. Verse 16 continues, but it does not go where I would expect. It goes corporate. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Everything I just said about getting the word into you, getting you into the word, sounds like good personal spiritual habits, spiritual disciplines. And that's true. They are disciplines. But that's not the whole truth. This text takes those word-saturating habits and puts them into the congregational setting brings it into this room and makes it a corporate activity. Verse 16 gives us three means or ways 
to let the word dwell in us richly. They're not the only ways, but Paul here is focused on how this is done in the congregation, or as we call it, the gathering. Three ways. One, teaching one another. Two, admonishing one another. And three, singing. I read a lot of Bible commentators on this passage, and I was surprised that many of them just skipped over the the last part of this verse. There was not a lot written. And I'm not sure why. They either uh, didn't cover it at all, or they covered it so lightly that their comments were, were pretty much useless. I don't know why, except to say that we don't often view teaching as something that we do with one another in the congregation. It's not one of the things that we typically think of, but teaching one another is a responsibility of being a church member. I can't remember if this is in the list of commitments that we make to one another uh, as members of Living Water Church, uh, but if it isn't, it should be. Because this isn't the only place that we find this command. Listen to what Paul said at the end of his letter to the church in Rome. He said, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. That's Romans 15, 14. The author of Hebrews is probably alluding to the same concept in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. For though by this time you, that's you plural, you all, for by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. You know, as I think about this responsibility to teach each other, I find that community groups are the perfect place for this. I always learn from the group I'm a part of. Every week we get together and we take the sermon and we drill down a little bit further and we press it into our lives. The, uh, the insight that I get from them is incredibly helpful and encouraging. It is one way of letting the word of Christ dwell in me richly. But community groups aren't the only place where this happens. It happens over a cup of coffee in discipleship. It happens when dads take their daughters on a date. It happens when moms homeschool the kids. It happens before and after the Sunday gathering when we spend time in fellowship with one another, or it should. Scripture, Paul tells us, is profitable for this very thing. So let's start teaching one another. You know, when I ask men as I often do about one-on-one discipleship, the most common response I hear is that they don't feel qualified. They don't feel qualified to teach someone else. Men, I don't buy it. You might not have it all figured out, and your life might not be all put together, but if you wait until it is, you will never do it. And you will miss out and so will others. Teaching one another is for mutual benefit. You sharpen each other as you teach one another. So let's get into the Word, and let's get the Word into us by teaching one another. 
Hand in hand with teaching, one another comes a more difficult one, admonishing one another. To teach is to guide or to show the way or to instruct, but to admonish is to see a brother or a sister veering off the path and warning them to return. I know we're hesitant to do this. It's a lot easier just not to get involved, but we're impoverished as a church if we neglect this. I realize that many times admonishing, warning others doesn't turn out well. You confront a brother in sin and he just gets angry or unfriends you or whatever they do. But this is what we're called to as brothers and sisters. We're called to warn one another. Admonishing one another is a critical way of letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Learn how to give it well and learn how to receive it well. So we must continually be teaching and admonishing one another. And the text adds this, it must be done in all wisdom. As one commentator said, the the Colossian Christians should be able to instruct one another. But such instruction should be given wisely and tactfully. If wisdom or tact is absent, the instruction, however well-intentioned, could provoke the opposite reaction to what was intended. And we know that that's true. We are to speak the truth, but we are to speak the truth in love. So I would encourage you to get the word into you and get into the word and do it at least one way by warning each other, by admonishing one another. The third way of letting the word dwell in you might be a surprise. It is for me. It is singing. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And most of you would agree that songs and voice and music are powerful ways of conveying a message, especially conveying the word of God and getting the word of God into us. But what are these psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? I know I'm going to disappoint some of you, but if there is a distinction between these three, it is not at all clear what that distinction is. Some scholars say that psalms are Old Testament psalms, like the psalms of King David, that hymns are songs of praise that focus on Christ, and that spiritual songs are more spontaneous and unrehearsed. They're prompted by the Spirit. On the other hand, there's evidence that these three words are actually used as a single title for Old Testament psalms and songs. So it's not clear, and nobody actually knows. But that shouldn't have too much to do with the impact of our understanding of the text. Singing in the gathering is one of the ways that we let the word dwell in us richly. If that's not clear to you from this verse, that singing in view here is corporate, then I want you to compare the parallel text in Ephesians 5, 18 and 19. This is important. And this verse is interesting because the songs are being addressed not only to God, but to one another. It's a fascinating passage. Ephesians 5, 18 and 19. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, 
but be filled with the Spirit. Now, you can see the parallel, being filled with the Spirit and, and the dwelling richly of the Word in us, this filling up, every nook and cranny. You can see the close parallel here. But in here, it's don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. How? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So as we think about singing as a way of letting the word dwell in us, it might be helpful to look at it through the lens of a first century believer in the city of Colossae. You see, at that time, the New Testament as we know it did not exist. I know you know that, but just think about it. There was no letter to the Colossians until it got delivered. So they didn't have what we now call the New Testament. As far as I know, there's no archaeological evidence of a Jewish synagogue in the city of Colossae. There is evidence of a Jewish colony in the city. So there may have been a copy of the Hebrew Scriptures somewhere, but we don't know. But we do know that even if there was a copy, the cost of a handwritten scroll would have been so expensive that very few could have ever owned it. And even if someone could own it, the literacy rate was so low that you couldn't read it. So my guess is that oral teaching, memorization, and especially singing were by far the main way that the Colossians would learn the word, how they would get the word into them and get into the word. If that was the situation in first century Colossae, and singing would have been a very powerful way of communicating the gospel, even as it is today. So let's get into the word and get the word into us by singing together. And let's add one more thing to that. This is the last point. The beauty of singing is that it's very effective for communicating the affections of the heart, like gratitude. Don't miss this in the text. The command to sing includes the command to be grateful. I know it's difficult for many of you to get your head around the fact that God commands you to have affections of the heart. Like we learned last week about the affection of love, but he does. It's all over the scriptures. The command here is to sing with gratitude. And there's more here than just a command to say thank you. This is a command to have the affection of gratitude in your heart. And you know this. You know you can make your seven-year-old say thank you to mom for the Brussels sprouts on his dinner plate. But you cannot make him feel gratitude in his heart for the Brussels sprouts. And that's precisely why I say that we are powerless to obey these commands apart from our union and our communion with the all-sufficient Christ. We need new hearts. We need new hearts that can feel the deep and lively affection of gratitude from our hearts to God. Yes, God commands affections, but we look to God to grant the affections he commands. That's from St. Augustine, who Josh quoted for us last week. I'd like to close by simply encouraging you this morning to get into the word 
and get the word into you this week and this year. It's timely that we came to this passage at the beginning of the year. Use every practical means at your disposal to saturate yourself with the Word of God. We have an embarrassing wealth of resources these days. We have print Bibles, apps, audio recordings coming out our ears. Use every practical means to get the Word into you and then meditate. Eat heartily, stuff yourself, and then digest it well. Saturate yourself so that if you're pricked, you'll bleed Bible. That's Charles Spurgeon. It's how he famously described John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress. Listen to this as we close. How instructive to us is this great truth that the incarnate word lived on the inspired word. He's talking here about Jesus quoting Psalm 31.5 as he hung on the cross. The word was food to him as it is food to us. And brothers and sisters, if Christ thus lived upon the word of God, should not you and I do the same? He, in some respects, did not need this book as much as we do. The Spirit of God rested upon him without measure, yet he loved the Scripture, and he went to it, and he studied it, and used its expressions continuously. Oh, that you and I might get into the very heart of the Word of God and get that Word into ourselves. As I have seen the silkworm eat into the leaf and consume it, so ought we to do with the word of the Lord. Not crawl over its surface, but eat right into it until we have taken it into our innermost parts. It is idle merely to eye, to let the eye glance over the words, but it is blessed to eat into the very soul of the Bible until at last you come to talk scriptural language and your very style is fashioned upon scripture models. And what is still better, your spirit is flavored with the words of the Lord. I would quote John Bunyan as an instance of what I mean. Spurgeon goes on. Read anything of his and you'll see that it's almost like reading the Bible itself. He had studied the authorized version, that's the King James. He had studied the authorized version. He had read it till his very soul was saturated with Scripture. And though his writings are charmingly full of poetry, yet he cannot give us pilgrim's progress without continually making us feel and say, why, this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere, and his blood is bibline. That's Spurgeon's word. I think he made it up. Prick him anywhere. His blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his very soul is full of the word of God. That is my prayer for you this week and this year, that your very soul will be filled with the word of God. Let me pray for that for us for this year.
Father, we are so thankful for your word. Father, we have such an abundance of it all around us. Forgive us for neglecting it, neglecting it as we have. Father, I pray that in the coming days and in the coming weeks that you would strengthen us to build habits that would feed continuously upon your word. Father, I pray that you would, that your word would dwell within us richly. Father, I pray that as we teach one another and as we warn one another of the dangers of the Christian life, and Father, even this morning as we sing together, Father, I pray that it would be part of the means that you use for your word to dwell within us richly. Father, we look for you to do that and to give us hearts that overflow with gratitude to you for it. For it is in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen. Parents, at this time, if you have children in the children's